This week on the show, we have GhostBSD 2111.24 ISOs available for you. Why version 7 of Unix matters so much. OpenBSD on the Via Eden X2 powered HP T510 Thint client. OctoPackage, a GUI package manager. Changed your support and po in POSIX spawn. That's the NetBSD project that was finished as part of Google Summer Code. Installing DoS on FreeBSD, how to. Accessing Modem's web interface with OpenSense and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 433, Ghost BSD of Christmas. Recorded on the 1st of December 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow, for various packages. Maybe you don't like the advertisings in here or other things. Maybe you want to drop a dollar in our tip jar and check out what we have there for you. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We have headlines in a BSD episode every week, and this is no different. Starting off with GhostBSD 21.11.24, the ISO is available now. And that reads as news uh, by Eric BSD, the posting. This new ISO contains kernel, operating system, and software updates. In addition, he added a new command line software called GhostBSD-version that gives you the GhostBSD version. FreeBSD version, kernel version, and operating system version. And at the date of this release, which is uh, 26th of November, if you run ghostbsd-version or ghostbsd-version-v for verbose, it should output 21.11.24. This version number will be increment by the date of new packages built on packages every update performed. Uh -huh. The ISO version is now following the last package's build version instead of an ISO's build date in the hope of removing the confusion about ISO versions. Okay, and there's a screenshot of the man page for GhostBSD-version. And what else is there? There's a list of features. They added a version file in the package repo, added etc-version with GhostBSD build from the version file in the package repos. They added also a feature in Update Manager to update etc version and uh, create the mentioned GhostBSD version. They also um, moved the version under set underscore GhostBSD underscore version and set the GhostBSD ISO version from the repo and moved the restart now button on the update completed window to be first on right. Ah, yes. And they fixed the bug by uh, fixed uh, create a schema with an empty disk. Ah, yeah, good to have. They have instructions how to download and burn your ISO USB stick, if you want to call it that, <laughs> burning. Uh, and the minimum system requirements uh, is a 64-bit processor, 4 gigabytes or more of RAM, 15 gigabytes of free hard disk space, and a network card. Yeah. Also, if you head over to the events page on ghostbsd.org, you can check out uh, their calendar. Uh, Eric started coming to the uh, my Hamilton BSD user group and was enjoying it, so they've started their own as well. Oh, cool. So their next meeting is Saturday, December 11th at 9.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern time. And if you go to the calendar, it'll, it'll show when it is in your time zone. Um, and so they have a, a Jitsi meeting where they'll talk about GhostBSD and FreeBSD and ZFS and anything like that. Uh, and cool way to hang out and a time that might be a lot more conducive to people in Europe. 
and then they also have the the uh, Hamilton BSD user group on their calendar because uh, they've been coming to that, and that's in the evenings on the second Tuesday of each month. Ah, okay. Yeah, check out the user groups. You might find interesting topics there or just the people, what they talk about. It's definitely an experience talking to other BSD users. Then our story here reads, why V7 matters so much. So another great another great post by Chris Seiberman over at his uh, utoronto.ca page. Mm -hmm. And so why V7 Unix matters so much. Uh, when I talk about things uh, involving the history of Unix, I often uh, wind up mentioning V7, also known as 7th edition of Research Unix from Bell Labs. For a recent example, uh, you can look at my entry on when Unix got stack size limits. If you're relatively new to the history of Unix, you might wonder why V7 keeps coming up so often. There are a number of reasons that V7 matters so much in the history of Unix and uh, what we think of as Unix and the Unix way of doing things. Unix and C were originally created and developed in the Bell Labs uh, Computer Science Research Center, or CSRC, by various well-known people like Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie. The group's release of V7 was a pivotal moment in the history of Unix, as it was both widely publicized and relatively widely distributed. This led to a number of effects, both practical uh, and of perceptions. First, V7 uh, is effectively the common ancestor of various strains of Unix since then. Uh, it's not quite true of things like the programmer's workbench, but close enough. And both BSD Unix and AT&T Unix, you know, System 3 and System 5, branched off from that V7 research Unix. So things in V7 were generally inherited by both of them, while things introduced after V7 uh, in some Unix line had to make their way either back and forth or didn't uh, always make the trip at all. This tends to be why I go back to V7 and opt in no further to see when something was introduced and if it was originally common to BSD Unix and System 3 or System 5. Second, V7 was where a lot of things that we think of as the way Unix and C were, uh, the way they are, were actually originally established. V7 is where we got the born shell and a relatively modern dialect of C with things like uh, standard IO. Both the V6 shell and C were somewhat different at the point, and you couldn't necessarily compile a V6 program even with 1980s C compilers. Never mind more modern ones. Mm. In fact, a lot of Unix comes from V7, and it's probably the oldest research Unix that would feel uh, normal and familiar to Unix users of today. If you go any older, things get really strange. Uh, the Wikipedia page on Research Unix has a useful summary of what changed in that version. You know, V7 was uh, also the most widely publicized version of Unix up until the point, and probably uh, for a significant while after that. The Bell Labs Technical Journal published a lot of Unix papers in July and August of 1978. For example, um, that was before V7 was released later in January of 79. Uh, but the papers were about what was in the process of becoming V7. The V7 documentation was made into two volumes, officially published uh, things in the early 80s uh, that you could buy in bookstores. Well, probably only university and technical mm. bookstores, but you get the idea. Uh, which made it possible for people in general to be thoroughly exposed to the detailed uh, Unix things that were in V7. And also C. This spread the idea and influence of Unix and C even to people who had never actually used V7. Uh, as a parenthetical, he says, I would like to say that V7 was also widely distributed to universities and to some extent elsewhere, 
and was thus where people started actually getting exposed to Unix. But in practice, I don't think that was the case. V7 had a relatively narrow uh, time window of only a few years before it was supplanted at universities by BSD Unix, partly because BSD ran on much more powerful and capable deck backs machines. A somewhat less uh, pleasant reason to come back to V7 is that it was the last significant Unix release uh, from Bell Labs uh, Research Center. To quite a lot of people, this makes V7 the last pure Unix, the one that expresses the intentions of the creators of Unix. All other Unixes since then, like BSD, System 5, and even Linux, are in some sense contaminated by outsiders who do not fully understand the Unix philosophy. Both BSD and System 3-5 added and changed things which people find objectionable and non-Unix-y, so ignoring these as you know, not in V7 and not the original intention of Unix is sometimes seen as convenient, even if in practice very pe few people would use that pure Unix that they're talking about. <laughs> the corollary is that if something was in V7, you can argue that it's probably pretty close to what the creators of Unix thought it should be like. Uh, this causes people to look at V7 uh, in some sense to see Unix in its pure form before it was contaminated by later people and concerns and so on. And it says, P.S. Even if V7 didn't last very long at many universities, my impression is that it often was what got Unix started at that university. People might not have been quite as enthused about buying Vaxes and using BSD Unix uh, if they didn't have experience with V7 before that or heard from people who had. Mm, could very well be, yeah. All right, it's now time to jump into our news roundup. And we have OpenBSD on the Via Eden X2 powered HP T510 Thin Client for you. Uh, Frederick Campus on his blog writes, Back in 2017, I bought two used HP Thin Clients on a local auction site, the T5570E and the T510, both of them powered by a Via x86 64-bit CPU. In this article, I will focus on the T5010, which is uh, T510, <laughs> which is uh, the more powerful of the two. The CPU in this machine is a Via Eden X2 U4200, which is a dual-core x86-64 CPU running at 1 GHz released in 2011. For those interested about the status of those CPUs, I uh, wrote a separate article and linked to that uh, back in 2018. The machine came equipped with 4 GB of RAM and 16 GB SATA modules for a passer, uh, no, from a passer, uh, which he replaced with an SSD. On the plus side, those machines are fanless and all x86-64 via CPUs have the padlock features, making them an interesting alternative to older Celerons, which were lacking the AES-NI support, the encryption. Yeah. On the minus side, the CPU is quite slow and the power consumption of the device is not that light. Xenocara, which is OpenBSD's uh, x.org, uh, x uh, works on these machines. Uh, using the Open Chrome driver, which he updated to version 0 0.6.176 uh, back in 2018 in order to fix display issues on his system, thanks to Mathieu, at, who was kind enough to give him some pointers about the process. Then he updated it to the 0 0.6.182 version in 2019 and finally to 0.6.409 version a couple of days ago at the time of this blog posting. So he did a quick uh, MD5-T benchmark and figured, okay, 
not too bad. And the same result for the SHA1-T benchmark. So that is fairly good. Okay, so for the record, LibreSSL speed benchmark are linked separately. And he provides the D message output that uh, lists all the supported uh, and detected drivers and hardware it found. Uh, the sensors output from susctl hw.sensors tells us it's 49 degrees <laughs> Celsius, that is, in the CPU zero. And he also provides the PCI device data from PCI dump. Okay, maybe there's a follow-up uh, telling us about what he's using this machine for and what uh, it can still do. It would be interesting. Then we have a new package manager for the GUI of free fans out there uh, called Octo Package for FreeBSD, that is. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so if you're looking for a GUI package manager uh, on FreeBSD, what options do you have if managing packages using the terminal is not your thing? And this question uh, makes even more sense if you're coming from Linux, as the text world is abundant of these different graphical package managers. So introducing OctoPackage, a fast, simple, and reliable front-end GUI package manager for FreeBSD that provides a similar experience to Synaptic on uh, some Linux systems. Though most uh, FreeBSD users prefer the good old terminal to manage packages in FreeBSD, probably end there sooner or later, having a graphical manager uh, can be quite nice. So they have uh, they show it off. It's basically a fast and simple Qt5 uh, front end for package and G or just package on FreeBSD. It's built in C++ and it's licensed under the GPL v2, which seems like a slightly odd choice, but it's fine. Um, has a clean, easy to use interface, much like searching packages and applications uh, with Synaptic on Linux. You can search the packages in FreeBSD repository by their name or what files they provide or the description and so on. I wonder if it uses that uh, package provides plugin. Oh, that would be great. Maybe it does. Yeah, it's funny. You see, use the command line and run package install octo package, and then you can <laughs> run octo package and not have to use the command line ever again. <laughs> yeah, chicken and egg problem. Yeah, you can definitely get a good impression from the screenshots they provided there. And yeah, it seems like straight enough, uh, straightforward enough to do the all, all everything from installing packages removing packages to updating them and they also have a couple of shortcuts there if you <laughs> move the mouse not too much and can still work with the keyboard so there's a couple of handy shortcuts there for you pretty good nice one uh, they also have a nice tutorial section on this uh, page where um, we found this article so we will revisit it in a short while because there's a nice tutorial for you there but before we should go that way we have a project report for you from netbsd about the support uh, in change deer for posix spawn uh, and this is of course on the netbsd blog and this post was written by piush such sorry probably messed this up uh the abstract reads the primary goal of the project was to extend POSIX underscore spawn to include change deer for the newly created child process. This must have been for a Google Summer of Code, wasn't it? Probably. So two functions were supposed to be implemented, namely POSIX spawn uh, file actions at chdir and POSIX spawn file actions at fchdir to support both uh, change deer and fchangedir respectively. POSIX spawn is a POSIX standard method responsible for creating and executing new child processes. Quite useful to have. Implementation. 
Uh, the original code can be found at his GitHub tree. The implementation plan was discussed and made with the guidance of both his mentors. Ah, yes, that is from uh, Google Sum of Code. His mentors, Martin Husemann and Jörg Sonnenberger. The plan was divided into three phases, each corresponding to the specific part of the NetBSD code base, which is supposed to be touched. The user land. The following actions were performed in the user land to set up the dubs for kernel space. They added another member to the POSIX spawn file actions t-struct uh, union, which would hold the path to change deer. Implement the two functions POSIX spawn file actions at change deer and the add f change deer, uh, which would include allocating memory for another POSIX spawn file actions object in the POSIX spawn file actions array, and second take the path file descriptor from the user as an argument and make the relative field in the newly allocated file actions point to it. Then uh, there's a couple things needed to be done in the kernel space. It's kind of difficult uh, to explain by not looking at the code and uh, what uh, changes were made in the source code there. Uh, but the testing and documentation section has a couple of uh, 10 new test cases listed that have been added because when you're writing new code, you should also test it properly. And there were also three utility functions added to aid in testing. Uh, out of the three, one new function was written and two existing functions, uh, file size and empty out file, were used. To make sure that the two existing functions were shared between both of the files, uh, a new header and a C file was created. Okay, very good. Uh, the 10 test cases cover the following scenarios. Absolute path test for both changedir and fchangedir. Relative path test, same for both. Trying to open a file instead of a directory. Uh, invalid path slash file descriptor, trying to open a directory without access permissions to change deer, and opening a closed file descriptor for fchangedir. Uh, the first eight tests had a lot of repetitive code. Therefore, at the time of integration, another function was created uh, like spawn underscore changedir. This function included a huge chunk of the common code and it did all the heavy lifting for those first eight test cases. Documentation. Yes, there is documentation. <laughs> In this matter, a complete mad page is written. Nice. Which explains both POSIX spawn file actions at chdir and the same for f uh, at fchdir. Kind of a tongue twister there. In great detail. The content of the manual page is taken from the POSIX documentation provided to us by Robert Else. Uh, issues. Since the project was well planned from the beginning, it resulted in few issues. The user land was the most straightforward part of the project and he had no trouble sailing through it. Kernel space was where things got a bit complicated as they had to add functionality to pre-existing functions. Ah, okay. Yeah, you have to understand those to make sense of how to uh, extend those. Uh, they were also completely new to using ATF and Groth, so the automatic testing framework and Groth, the manual page formatting tool. Therefore, it took some time to understand the respective man pages and become comfortable with testing and documentation parts. Most of the issues faced were generally logistical. As it was his first time during a kernel project, it was new uh, to building, yeah, in general building from source, virtual machines, and other things like SSH. But luckily, they had great help from their mentors and the entire NetBSD community. And the, ex uh, the closing thanks read, I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude to the NetBSD Foundation for giving me the opportunity and sponsoring this project. This project would not have been possible without the constant support and encouragement from both my mentors, Martin Husemann and Jörg Sonnenberger. My gratitude to Christos Zulas, who worked on the crucial part of integrating the code, a special mention to all the other esteemed NetBSD developers who have helped me navigate through the thick and thin of this project and have answered even my most trivial questions. Hey, that sounds like a great project and a successful one. Very good. Now we jump back to the how-to I already mentioned over at 
the uh, website we were just at and they have a nice tutorial section where you can maybe find something that you uh, didn't know before. And this one we picked uh, is how to install Duas in FreeBSD 13 with examples. Yeah, and so it shows, you know, switching to the root user and running package install Duas, which is pretty straightforward, um, but also configuring it, uh, you know, adding, seeing who's in the wheel group now, adding more users to the wheel group, uh, setting up the Duas file with, you know, your whether you're allowed to keep your environment or if you have a password or not and what you're allowed to do with the different commands. Mm -hmm. Oh, we should maybe ping Michael W. Lucas and ask, is there going to be a do as mastery, like pseudo mastery uh, going to happen? Yeah, straightforward. And you can see what it does with examples and output. So that's definitely one step further into the do as world if you're not using sudo anytime soon or want to switch or try out what both can do i guess you probably will find that both uh will serve you right in becoming temporarily as this permissive user called root for a specific command then we have a, a little tutorial there uh for OpenSense in particular if you have OpenSense behind your uh, cable company's modem sometimes that modem has a web interface that you would like to access but because your router is in front of it and that's on the other side, it's usually hard to get to. So they have a little tutorial on how to do it. So most modems have a web interface which allow you to view information about the status of your modem, including signal strength and quality, maybe configure the Wi-Fi or whatever. Uh, and all this information can be useful, especially as diagnostic tools when troubleshooting an issue, or you might need to access it to provide information to your ISP support people when you're uh, working on it. Uh, you might also need to look at the firmware version to see what's going on there. The IP address to access the modem's web interface in this case was 192.168.100.1. Uh, since that's an address not typically used by other consumer-grade routers, if you are using a consumer-grade router, you might uh, just simply visit that to access the web page uh, since this typically allows access to all the internal networks by default. Uh, but if you're using OpenSense in its default configuration where the LAN interface has an allow all rule, you should be able to access your modem's web interface if it's in the same subnet, but if it's not, then you get more difficulties. If you have your network locked down tighter and so on, you might have problems. So to allow access to your modem's web interface, uh, when you are not using the default allow all rule or whatever, um, you'll need to add a firewall rule for each VLAN or specific device in your network to be able to access that. And so they have an example here, you know, since the web interface contains important information, you may not be a bad idea to only allow it from your management VLAN or uh, from certain workstations and so on. And they kind of show how to do that. And uh, make sure you only allow the ports used by the web interface because some modems have uh, you know, a spectrum analyzer that is exposed on a different port and that may be vulnerable to attack and so on. The difficult part about it is if your modem gets hacked, uh, you have very little or no visibility on what's occurring on it. Uh, there's you know, cable haunting and so on going on there. But one word of caution is to ensure that you do not create any networks of VLANs in the same address range as your modem. You know, if the modem is using that 192.168.100 range, you want to make sure that your VLAN is somewhere else so that you can route to it and not uh, assume that it's going to be in the same segment when it's actually in a different VLAN. Uh, which means you will, you know, you wouldn't be able to access your modem's interface since your VLAN uh, it looks like the same subnet, so it'll try to just send an ARP directly, but because it, it's in a different VLAN, it won't get there, and things won't work the way you hope. Mm, makes sense, yeah. 
this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap.com. Go to Tarsnap.com slash BSD Now and get set up and start doing your backups. You're going to thank us when you need them. Uh, turned out uh, this week, actually, I had to top up my Tarsnap account for the first time in five years. The original uh, $20 I put in is now all been used up. <laughs> um, but, you know, at this point, I, I'm using still only about 15 cents a month or so uh, as just backing up my most important files uh, multiple times a day. And so even though it's it's something like eight gigs of data, I think I have uh, that's being backed up multiple times a day because of the deduplication, I'm only paying for the unique blocks uh, of which, you know, I only had a couple hundred K a day probably as I, you know, make new business documents and download invoices mm. and whatever other things I end up having to do. Because the way Tarsnap works, it takes all your data, segments it and deduplicates it. It has a cache of what you've already backed up. Uh, and it says, okay, I don't need to send these blocks. I do need to send these blocks. Then we compress them, then encrypt and sign them and send them off to the cloud. And that means that nobody at Amazon, nobody in the, at your ISP, nobody at the government, and nobody at Tarsnap can read your files. Only somebody with the key, which is only on your computer. So as long as you protect that key and don't lose it, because if you lose it, you can't restore and don't expose it to anyone, because if you do, then they can read your backups, uh, then your backups are perfectly safe. Uh, and it's the only backup service that allows you those guarantees of you can examine the source code for the client and you control the key, not the backup provider. You know, it's a feature that Tarsnap cannot reset your key for you if you lose it. If you lose it, then the data's gone forever. And that's on purpose because with the cloud, you can never be sure that Amazon has actually erased something. So the way that works is you purposely destroy the key and make a new one. And you know, all the old backups are now unreadable by anyone. Anyway, head over to tarsnap.com, sign up, put some money in and start backing up your files when you need to restore. And it just works. You will be very, very happy. Yep. So feedback and questions for this episode. Uh, if you are interested in sending us feedback and questions, then your email address is feedback at bsdnado.tv. Uh, usually we would have feedback and questions for this, but we didn't get any. So no feedback for this episode because no one sent us anything. I guess we've answered every BSD and Unix question that everyone has. Woohoo! We can all go home now. Oh, wait, we are already at home. Uh... Yeah, so remember, we have our Christmas episode coming up where you interview us. So that can still uh, reach us by using the same email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv, because otherwise this will be also a very short Christmas episode and a very boring interview with us. So give us something we can talk about in the future. Yeah, uh, you can send in your questions. Uh, and yeah, they can just be questions for us or even just feedback, you know. A couple of weeks ago, you talked about this. You should have also mentioned this or, hey, what about this? And all kinds of things like that. And, you know, also looking for your ideas for Patreon perks. Uh, now that we have Patreon set up, uh, which I know a bunch of you requested, if you have an idea for a cool perk that you think a bunch of people will be interested in, uh, do let us know. Yep. Don't be shy. Uh, we talk about project ideas, anything that you find interesting, maybe we... Other people who are listening as well find that also interesting and you can, you know, team up this way or 
anything about open source contributing. There's plenty of topics we could talk about. Uh, maybe not about gardening. Yeah, actually, I was, I was just thinking. Um, you know, we're having a discussion in, in FreeBSD about. Uh, you know, the FreeBSD Foundation is looking for project ideas for next year. Ah, yes. Uh, what kind of things would people like to see? Uh, and one of them that I've been talking to some people about since EuroBSDCon is the ability to create a jail as a non-root user. Uh, most likely you'd only be able to use the jail as your user. So you'd basically be able to create a jail and say run Firefox in it, but you wouldn't be able to do anything as root in that jail because you're not root. That's so a you feature, actually. Uh, and so on. But, you know, what kind of use cases would you have for jails that aren't, uh, that are more locked down and, and can only do stuff as the one regular user and, you know, you can't change to any other user in it and uh, other interesting things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these are perfect uh, items you could send us and we'll be happy to discuss them here uh, in a wider audience. So yeah, I think we don't have much more for you and we'll be signing off a bit earlier today, but uh, we'll be back with another episode next week as usual. 